host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich. Joining me is my buddy, John Mattis. John, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. Uh, we had to delay this recording because my mouth was frozen this morning. Went to the dentist and uh, they did their thing. And I didn't know that it took like two or three hours to unfreeze. As, so, as a rookie in the dentist chair, as far as uh, operations. But no, everything's cool. Coming off the long weekend here. And uh, I guess roughly midway through the conference finals. Yeah. Well, John, it's the playoffs, especially the conference final. We got we all got to <laughs> play through pain a little bit, right? A, little, a few bumps and bruises along the way. Um, yeah. No, it's uh, it was a fun long weekend. It's good to get back in the uh, in the swing of things. Here, we're going to talk at least out of the gate uh, about Panthers Hurricanes because it feels like you know that's the game we saw last night. Uh, we've already seen three games in that series now with the Panthers going up three nothing with their victory on Monday night. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit, unpack it, what we've seen, and kind of talk about some of the, the main takeaways from that. And then we'll bounce around and cover a few other topics later on in the show. But starting with that, you know, the Panthers pull out another close one-goal win. That makes them 9-1 and one in one-goal games this postseason. And they're 6-0 and oh in overtime as well uh, during this magical playoff run that they've been on to this point. One win away from the Stanley Cup final. And, you know... <laughs> While we're currently at three and zero and two and two and zero in the two respective conference finals, right? I do feel like after the round two we had, where it was kind of defined by all these blowouts and lack of competitive games, it feels like we're at least getting our wish so far. Maybe not in terms of the series scores, but through five games, there remarkably hasn't been a single two goal lead yet, which is uh, which is quite a stat to ponder. So pretty much every one of these games so far has been played with the game on the line, basically being a one shot game, and so. There's certainly been no lack of drama, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, even with the Panthers Hurricanes specifically, the score has been tied or within one goal, as you alluded to, the entire series. So that's 13 periods because we got so much overtime, 262 minutes here. Yep. So it's almost a, a little unfortunate that it's three nothing Florida and two nothing Vegas because you'd think, okay, mix in you know a series that's a little closer here, given how the games have looked. Well, that's a that's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about with you because I think you know the NHL playoffs. I keep bringing up aren't really a meritocracy, in in the sense that it doesn't necessarily matter what you quote unquote deserve based on how you're playing, right? It's that's the nature. That's both the blessing and a curse of a seven game series format where you only need to win four times, and a couple bounces here or there on isolated events can play an outsized role in determining that, right? It doesn't really matter if you're carrying the flow of play. Maybe it makes you more likely to benefit from one of those bounces, but for the most part, it doesn't ultimately matter that much. And I bring that up because I've seen a lot of the conversation about this series has sort of been framed around how the Hurricanes are super unlucky to be down 3 nothing, right? How Sergei Bobrovsky is standing on his head and stealing these games. And I guess I just don't really see it that way. Uh, I, In my opinion, all three games have been like essentially 50-50 coin flips where mm-hmm. it was pretty evenly played, could have certainly gone either way. I mean, the first two games obviously went to overtime. And, you know, in that sense, Florida's certainly fortunate to have won all three of those coin flips. But if you take a step back and think about it probabilistically, teams win three close coin flip games in a row all the time. Like it's not that much of a statistical aberration or that much of an you know, crazy event. I can't believe this is happening. So I get why there would be frustration from the Hurricanes perspective. And if you're rooting for them that, oh man, it feels like we've been so close and we have nothing to show for it so far. But I I guess the point I'm trying to make is I'm pushing back against the idea that it has been one-sided or unevenly played. And I actually think all three of these games have been very hotly contested by both sides. Yeah. And let's face it, Carolina kind of weathered the storm against Boston and Toronto in a sense that they have no finishers. You and mean they, Flo- they got Flo- wait, wait, wait? You mean Florida? Florida played Toronto and Boston. Sorry, sorry, I, sorry, I meant Florida, there. not not Carolina. Yes. I meant I meant Carolina weathered the storm in their first two rounds. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I get the the against uh, against the there. Islanders and the Devils. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. And my point with that is they lose Pacioretty and Sveshnikov to end uh, the regular season. Obviously, they didn't really have Pacioretty all year. Um, they come into the playoffs. As a team that I was worried about, it's like, okay, who's going to score in this roster? Okay, you've got Aho, you've got Natchez, you've got Tara Vinen, who ends up getting injured and is now returned. You've got Jarvis, but I don't know. Is that enough? And again, they they got through the first two rounds fine. They actually, I believe, were leading 
um, the playoffs and in, in goals per game coming into this round, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, if not, they were, they were at least second and, you know, Ajo's gotten a ton of looks this, uh, this, this uh, round, especially in game three. Um, but it, I, for me, like they're putting a lot of shots in, in Bobrovsky's chest. Um, they got better with, with their screens and they're sort of making life difficult on him in game three, but games one and two, I think that was really lacking. And, no shots in the final three minutes or so in game three with the net empty. I mean, that's, you're not exactly giving yourself a great chance to tie up, tie up the game there. And I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's great to get attempts. It's great to get shots on goal, but what do these attempts and shots on goal look like? How difficult are they actually? And, you know, you got to give tons of props to Brabovsky. I mean, he's been, Mm -hmm. He's been brilliant. Like, there's no denying that. But I think at the same time, Carolina hasn't done themselves a ton of favors as far as uh, the quality of opportunities that they've had. And when they do get the, the high-quality opportunities, it's guys like Jesper Fast or someone further down the lineup who is pulling the trigger on those shots, and they're just not snipers. They're just really missing Pacioretty and Sveshnikov. And I know that's, like, a very easy thing to point out or a very obvious thing, but it, it's just, it's true. It's, it's the truth. Well, they're missing Svechnikov in this series, particularly because you think that stylistically he would be such a difference maker in this, right? A lot of what's ailed them has been breaking into the inside, winning those battles in front of the net, kind of using like, like having a size and skill combination. They have very few players who can put those two things together. And so he obviously checks a lot of those boxes. And, and I think he would make a difference in this series for a series that has been, the margin's been as razor thin as it has. I the Pacioretty excuse, I think we've we've uh we've passed the expiration date on that one, right? It's like a 34-year-old coming off of a torn Achilles who had played five games for this team and the second injury happened two months before the trade deadline. I don't there was no like down the stretch heading into the playoffs. They're relying on Max Pacioretty for scoring, right? Like I'm sure, sure part of the offseason plans coming in were like all right, if we have a healthy Max Patch ready, he's going to be a difference maker for us in this type of setting. But they had plenty of time to kind of change course and adjust for that injury, right? The Svechnikov one is obviously in its own camp and, and, and entirely brutal. But um, yeah, for the series, I've got at five on five, scoring chances 40 to 37 for Carolina. So a three, three scoring chance gap. And in all situations, 50 to 45 Carolina. Now they're winning both those those are very, very close margins, right? It's a huge scoring chances here or there. And I think that paints a picture where this has been far closer than any shot attempt or shot on goal stat would indicate. And something you and I have been DMing about a lot, and it's been a, a growing frustration of mine so far this postseason, really all year, but especially now bleeding into the postseason, has been the number of times we've seen, and it, and it happened on the broadcast last night as well on the Canadian feed, this goal save above expected stat for Sergei Bobrovsky that's being thrown out in my mind kind of recklessly because it's just being presented without any real kind of context or further scrutiny or investigation. Right. And and, and I'm not expecting um, Craig Simpson and, 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 and Chris Cuthbert to be like talking about the intricacies of a goal save above expected during a game, of course. But I think when you see it on Twitter, it's a bit of a different story. And for me right now, a public model like Evolving Hockey has Sergei Bobrovsky at plus 19.8 goals save above expected in his 13 games so far this postseason, which is obviously ridiculous and, and astronomically larger than any other one of his peers so far, right? I just, in this series, they've got, he's given up three goals against on 14.6 expected goals against. So that, you know, some quick math here, um, 11.6 goals save above expected in these three games for Sergei Bobrovsky. I just don't think that is representative of the workload he's faced and what a, a massive achievement this has been. I mean, he has a 978 save percentage or whatever in these three games. Like that speaks for itself. And he's clearly been the difference maker. But for me, when you see these stats floated around that aren't actually really painting a clear picture of it, I do get a little frustrated when I see that. Yeah. And it's almost a perfect storm here, right? Because you've got the hurricanes, you know, no pun intended, a team that, is just all like they're known for throwing pucks on net. They're known for going for the quantity. And uh, again, I, I bring up the lack of shooting talent. Well, if a guy is right in front of the net in the slot 
shooting on Brubovsky and nails him right in the chest, that's going to count as a really high ex- uh, expected goal, right? But we're forgetting that at the end of the day, they, they don't have those snipers and they're really suffering from it. So I think that's thrown in there. And also we I have access to the sport logic data and it's consistently much lower. Brubovsky's goal saved above expected is usually, I don't know, uh, a goal or two difference uh, when per you're game, looking at sport much. logic yep. per game, uh, when you're looking at sport logic versus say evolving hockey. And uh, for example, Brubovsky's last eight games. So that's all of round two and the start of round three, they're at 11.3 goals saved above expected, which a lot, which lines up a lot more with, with what we've seen mm-hmm. considering I believe evolving hockey has them at, at 18 in that same period. So that's a whole five, you know, goal gap there. And and one looks out, one looks so crazy historic and one looks like Robosky's really good, a very, yes. very good job. But, you know, it's not this sort of thing that we need to uh, get all hyped up about. And, you know, I, the, the con Smythe, as far as uh, Florida is, is concerned is it's between Kachuk and Brabovsky. Like there, it's not like we're, we're downplaying his value to their run here, but things have been a little skewed as far as uh, the numbers. And it goes back to even the way that the NHL is tracking their stats. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen a bunch of people who bet on hockey complain about the Burns, Brent Burns shot totals this off season or sorry, not off season. Post-season. Post-season. Yeah, yeah. I think the dentist is screwing up my head. I've had a bunch of miss, uh, <laughs> missteps here in, in how I'm talking. That's all um, right. The show goes on. The show goes on. Um, and if you watch games, like you're, you're looking at the, the shot total, right. On the, on the score bug and you're going, okay. It, it just went from 12 shots for, for Carolina to 13 after I just saw three, like, it's like, it doesn't really add up. Yeah. And I look back today at the, the amount of posts and, and crossbars that Carolina's hit and I could have sworn in the first three games they've hit like seven, but according to the play-by-play data, they've hit three or four. It's like, mm. you know, there's just something going on with the way that things are being tracked. And that, that doesn't mean we should throw out all these stats or or not look on evolving hockey or not look on natural stature because they're extremely valuable. But it's been a weird postseason as far as uh, the numbers lining up with the eye test. Yeah, I think and there's something particularly weird going on with Florida's way of playing defense and how that is messing with it in particular, right? Because in round two, I believe that the public models had Bobrovsky at like 9.3 or something in that ballpark goal save above expected in the five games, which is obviously a massive amount. It's nearly two per game. And then the private ones had him around like 3.9 or, or, or somewhere in that range. And that is a significant change in the first two games of this series. The public models had him at 9.02 goal save above expected. And that was largely driven by that game one, which was essentially two games in one. And they had that one at like 7.3 to 4.2 in in Carolina's favor. And I watched that game very closely twice. There is no way that is what was happening. It was like scoring chances were completely even. I think each team at 22. I actually think Florida, aside from that third period where the ice was completely tilted and Carolina was controlling the puck, was the better team for most of those periods. And yet you come away from it being like, wow, Sergey Bobrovsky gave up two goals on 7.2 goal save above expected. That's one of the best performances I've ever seen. And that did not line up with what you actually would have watched if you were paying attention to where those shots were coming from and who they were coming from. And so I think this is an important differentiation. I think it's also, you know, part of what we try to accomplish here on this show on the PDO cast is you take some of these numbers and then you peel back a few layers and you try to kind of, you know, apply a little uh, intellectual curiosity, right? Like try to figure out, all right, why this is, why this is happening, what's going on, what could possibly be some theories that explain this. And so I wanted to get into that a little bit with you here today in terms of, you've already sort of mentioned a few of the key points there in terms of where the shots are coming from and who they're coming from for the hurricanes. The notes that I've got here are one, I think the quality of the shot type, right? And so I mentioned that the scoring chances in the series have been 50 to 45 for Carolina. That's in three games, but technically 13 periods of play. Mm-hmm. That's a very low amount, right? And and I'm not surprised to see Florida have only 45 scoring chances because Carolina is one of the best defensive teams in the league. And we know that they suppress that very well. But it being so close actually speaks to how Florida is very comfortable with the way the series is being played because 
they clearly have more finishing talent and more high-end shooters to convert all those chances. So if they're going to be that close, I would expect Florida to convert a higher percentage of them, right? If it's going to be a completely even split in that regard, Florida should have more goals scored so far than Carolina. So I think in terms of that specific just kind of quality of shot type, I think that's an important uh, piece of this puzzle here. Sure. And I think... uh... What I really love about ClearSight analytics, obviously Kevin Woodley, when he's on to talk about goalies, cites it often, is they account for screens. They account for just not every shot is created equal. And that's something we're seeing in in this series to, to the nth degree where, you know, I don't know. I've just, uh, it goes back to the Toronto series as well against Florida. I find that, again, you know, it's probably Florida's defense and how they're, controlling what what's being thrown on net but I find that Bobrovsky although he's made obviously some phenomenal stops a lot from distance a lot like just one-on-one goalie versus player versus going through layers of screens Mm. um and you know less jam plays than you would expect uh and let's face it Florida's also gotten some pretty good bounces right like (laughs) how many times uh over our 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 life when we've been watching hockey, have we seen those goals off a skate mm-hmm. or just a fluky bounce? Um, and that just hasn't happened to Florida. So I think that's part of it too, is the luck's been in their favor to some extent in terms of the, just uh, the weirdness, not, not, not really tipping towards their net. Well, in these past two series in particular, I think the, the first round against Boston is kind of a, it, its own isolated series. It doesn't really apply to this, but in these two against Toronto and Carolina so far, I do think Florida deserves a ton of credit for how masterfully they've been winning a lot of these battles in front of their net, right? Like their Mm -hmm. defensemen have been tying up sticks, been pushing opposing forwards out, giving Bobrovsky kind of clear sight to see some of these shots. It feels like, and you know, this is part of also, I think why he's looking so impressive to the eye is he's making a lot of confident saves, right? Like he's like, you, you don't need to be Kevin Woodley or a goalie expert to notice him coming out and just like absorbing shots in a very controlled manner. The reason why he's able to do that beyond the fact that he's clearly feeling himself and and seeing the puck very well is the Panthers have turned a lot of these shots into like one-on-one battles between shooter and goalie, right? Mm -hmm. Like he hasn't necessarily had to account for a lot of anything else. And that's a testament to them. Also credit to him for winning those battles. But we know that what, if you give your goalies that opportunity to just square up a shooter one-on-one, they most more, more often than not will save it. They might not have a 978 save percentage in, in three straight games, but they will do pretty well more often than not, right? So I, I wonder if there is kind of something to think about, kind of like a, a unknown cumulative effect uh, that exaggerates Carolina's problems even more in the sense that, you know, we always talk about, you hear goalies talk about particularly about how they like to see and feel the puck early in a game, right? Like they would like to get Mm -hmm. some of those warm-up shots under their belt where a few point shots, a few kind of easy straight line ones, absorb it, get your save percentage up, feel good, feel like you're in the game and you're getting in the zone. And a lot lot of these games, it does feel like Bobrovsky in particular has been able to get those. And then I wonder if that makes him even more likely to make a stop on a legitimately difficult shot when it comes up because – it's in a different sort of playing environment than it would have been otherwise. It's a, it's a difficult thing to sort of quantify. It's like, oh, he's made eight easy saves, and then that makes him more likely to make the ninth difficult one. But it does feel like that would intuitively make sense based on everything we know about goalies and how they like to talk about that trend. I think that's fair. And I think there's if, – if Carolina does end up losing the series, which is obviously very likely, um, or if they get swept, I, I don't think it's a matter of like, oh, we need to fire Rod Brindamore. I think he's just – an elite coach, but I do wonder if there's a conversation to be had in their front office, in their coach's room about at least throwing a wrench into their system, like playing slightly differently. Mm -hmm. Obviously it works in the regular season. It works generally in the playoffs as far as controlling play, but whether it's the offense running through the defenseman too much or the roster having too many of the same type of forwards, like there's something wrong with the mix there. And obviously this is easy to say when they're down three, nothing. And again, I, I think Brenda Moore is uh, you know, top five coach in the league. And it just comes down to though that they've, they've had essentially the same problem his entire tenure. It come when it comes down to the playoffs, they can't capitalize. They can't get those 
those important goals. And it's not a matter of like, oh, uh, their star players just aren't capitalizing. It's like, no, they just don't have a lot of those finishers in general. And perhaps their playing style is not conducive to winning the playoffs. I don't know. Yeah, it's like the Shaq meme. Um, you can't fool me. I'm familiar with your game, right? I, uh, I <laughs> Last year against the Rangers, Igor Shosturkin had a 947 save percentage in his series against the Hurricanes. The year before, Andre Vasilevsky had a 941 save percentage in his series against the Hurricanes. Uh, there was a series in the bubble against the Bruins where they did okay, actually, offensively. But the one before where they got swept by Tuka Rask, he had a 956 save percentage in that series. And obviously, these are like high-end goalies, especially Sestrykin and, and Vasilevsky recently. And I think that is part of like no one would have expected you to put Bobrovsky at this point of his career into that tier, right? So that I think the kind of how it runs to counter our expectations is part of this discussion. But the other point I wanted to make here, I I, I really do believe like this is this is not a matter of getting goalie. This is a matter of the Hurricanes kind of canesing themselves, right? Like the distribution of shots, and 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 this was very highlighted in Game Three for me. And I thought the Game Three, the way to play it out, was the perfect microcosm for some of these issues that availed them. In that game, people see the Hurricanes control the puck the entire game, right? Uh, the five on five shot shares at the end of the game, they were like in the seventies. I think the shots on goal might have been thirty one to nine or something at five on five for them by the time the game was over. And so you see that, and you're like, all right, in my head. They were the better team. They had the puck. They controlled the flow of the game. They deserved to score and they deserved to win. But here's the reality. The scoring chances in that game were 12 to 11, all situations for Florida. So they had more of them. The defensemen for the Hurricanes accounted for 60% of their shot attempts. For Florida, it was 36%. And that's been held true pretty much for his entire series. It really feels like Brandon Montour, who's almost like a fourth forward out there for Florida, is the only defenseman who actually has a green light to really shoot, other than if Gus Forsling kind of pops open uh, as a delayed trailer or whatever in transition. But for the most part, none of the other defensemen are shooting, whereas you compare that to Carolina's strategy, and as you mentioned, it's Burns, Slavin, Pesci, Shea are, are their leading shot takers in this game, in, in the series, right? And so I think that's an important piece of this. It, it's how they play. It's it's kind of unfair to, and it's gotten them this far. It's unfair to be like, well, Rod Brindabor needs to make the adjustment of telling Brady Shea instead of pumping a point shot to pass it down low for his forwards to work the cycle and try to get a shot closer to the net. That's just not really in their DNA. And part of it is personnel, part of it is system. But I think that's an important thing here. Like you watch that game three and they go into the third period. They're down one nothing. The only chance they get is a shot from Brett Pesci in the slot where I think he hits the post. And that's otherwise everything else gets choked off early in the game. You know, you talk about the shooting talent. Sebastian Ajo is the one exception here where like he's clearly a very gifted offensive player and he's created a ton of chances and he has nothing to really show for it, um, especially at five on five in this series. And and that is unfortunate. I feel like he certainly individually is due for much better. But beyond him, as after he got choked off a little bit on those chances, there was nothing else in the way of meaningful looks. And that's a real problem. And that's something that Carolina is gonna have to figure out because at some point you do bump into this type of a glass ceiling. Like it's, it's one thing to to be competitive and in the playoffs and winning a lot of regular season games and sticking around and hoping that one year you get the breaks and it goes your way. But when you keep losing in the exact same fashion year over year, if you are serious about winning a Stanley cup, I do feel like that's something that needs to be legitimately talked about and addressed internally. Yeah. And just to circle back on the, the actual finishers that are in the lineup, like, you mentioned Aho, a ton of looks. I think Jarvis has had a pretty good series. Yeah, uh, yeah. Him and, I mean, him and Aho have been really dangerous. I, I, I agree. Yeah, but Natchez is really disappointed, and then Tara Vinen seems still hurt or rusty or something's going on there where uh, he just doesn't quite look himself. So, and then you you can't rely on a Jordan Stall to carry your offense. Like he might pitch in a goal here or there, but I just don't know if uh, if you should really put be putting that that load on him. So. Yeah, part of it's roster construction, part of it is system. Like I think it's 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 pretty simple in that sense. Yeah. Well, um, that was you know it, it's funny and, and all lost in all of this. Hurricanes goalies, right? They use both Freddie Anderson and Auntie Ranta in this series. Have a nine forty two save percentage themselves, and the entire discourse is like, ah, well, sometimes you just you know the other team has a better goalie, and meanwhile these guys are like, we have a nine forty two save percentage. What do you <laughs> want from us? Uh, and they've been really good themselves. Like no real 
you know, stinkers or bad goals in there. It's been a lot of just high end displays of skill by Florida's guys who have converted some of these shots. And, and I guess that is the embodiment of this series and kind of a perfect encapsulation of where these two teams have differed. But yeah, generally, if you give up six goals in 13 periods, the way hurricanes goalies have combined to, you probably feel like you're going to win more of those games and not, and they just have nothing to show for it so far. Absolutely. Um, Okay, let's uh let's take our break here, um, and then when we come back, I have a few other notes on on this series before we move on to the Western Conference and some other uh, NHL notes. Um, so yeah, we'll do that after the break. You're listening to the Hockey Pediocast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Your number one spot for Flames coverage can be found on Flames Talk with me, Pat Steinberg. Exclusive interviews, trusted insiders, and the latest news. Listen live weekday afternoons at four, or stream the Flames Talk podcast on demand. All right, we're back here on the Hockey PDO cast with John Mattis. John, we're talking Hurricanes Panthers. Let's do a few other notes on this series. I, I did we give Bob Bobrovsky enough love because I I did a whole rant before I went to break <laughs> about how the goal save above expected numbers and just generally how the league tracks expected goals uh, for a lot of these public sites now is not accurate at all, and that's been the case all season. And I didn't mean for that to come across as like. Sergei Borowski has actually not been very good because he's given up three goals against in 261 minutes. He has a, a 978 in this series and a 935 in the postseason so far in 13 games, 110 of the last 11. I mean, he's been obviously remarkable. I just wanted to, I wanted to clarify that so it's not taken the wrong way. No, that's that's fair. And I think he's been fantastic. And I just love the the arc of this guy, right? Like in his 20s, he wins two Vesnas. But, like, in between there, there's some, like, bad seasons. In his 30s, he gets a huge contract. Really has not lived up to it until this moment. And it's, like, the ups and downs of that, the roller coaster of that, mixed in with the fact that he's had a couple of opportunities with the questions in the media this postseason to sort of just say, like, yeah, I'm back. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I earned my money. But he's been, you know, throwing the cliches out there. And I just kind of like that that quiet confidence that he's, he's uh, exhibiting and – um, I mean, Panthers are not where they are right now without him. I mean, I think that's that might be uh, the way to, to get straight to the point with that in terms of, like I said previously, him and Kachuk, bounce my favorites from from Florida, and I think maybe there, there's there's Montour there or third, but those are the two guys. Yeah, I mean, the expectations just fact, have to factor into the the magnitude of of what he's doing this postseason, right? Like in the regular season, plays fifty games, has an eight ninety six save percentage. He was healthy at the end of the year, and they chose to, at the end of the regular season, to claw their way into the playoffs. And in the first three games of round one against Boston, play a 30-year-old journeyman goalie with 42 NHL games to his name over him. And then eventually they make that change, and he rips off this tear. And, and it's, I think, just from a like a surprise-level perspective, beyond like not not being surprised that the Hurricanes aren't scoring, but just the, the, the to- totality of what he's done in these 13 games is certainly nothing short of of miraculous and and you made this point earlier as well for all you want to talk about like low percentage shots and kind of easy ones for him how often do we see some of those still bounce in or trickle through or get past you and for him from a shot to shot to game to game perspective to not really get beaten by any of those for this long of a period of time now is has to be quite stunning and and that part should definitely be frustrating for for the hurricanes and their fans for sure. And also just to to circle back on the the sort of narrative around around Bobrovsky, like his backup is supposed to be Spencer Knight. Like the hockey world's kind of forgotten about that kid. I know he went into uh, the player assistance program, so it's mm-hmm. very serious stuff. But like there was a point there in the season where it was Bobrovsky and then it was like this Alex Lyon guy who no one knew anything about. He's this journeyman. You know, there's a reason why he hasn't really played in the NHL and he's 30 years old. There, there was a real like awkward situation there where it's like, is this going to go super sideways for the Panthers down the stretch? Are they going to miss the playoffs? And it's it's become a matter of Robovsky not even needing a backup uh, after starting uh, on on the on the bench to for the playoffs. So it's it's just been a, a wild ride, and and I guess we'll see how it plays out here because after the the Toronto series, I'm going okay. It's very possible that 
he becomes a pumpkin here in, in round three, um, just because of the guy's history. Uh, he hasn't exactly been, a, um, you know, Mr. Consistency here. So mm-hmm. good for him. And uh, I, I want to just, just spin it forward in terms of uh, talking about a guy who's really impressed me this playoffs, Sam Reinhardt. I know yes. that you're a huge fan. Um, can we talk about him for a second? Yeah, I mean, he's the league leader in 200 IQ plays. So, um, yeah, yeah, could I lay it on me. <laughs> well, okay, so I I find that he's kind of been forgotten about just generally across the league, right? Like, he goes to the Sabres. They're a smaller market. I know they're in a northern city, but they're relatively small. Obviously, is attached to Eichel as far as that that era of, of Sabres hockey, and it's mm-hmm. not – that's that's mostly negative stuff. Goes to the Panthers, another – another small market. Um, and he's just really flourished there. I mean, the thing about him is that he's so, he, he's so deceptively strong. Like he's not, he's not quite physical, right? I wouldn't describe him as that, but he rarely loses puck battles and he's just always around the net. I mean, if you go back and look at his goals from his entire NHL career, there are either deflections, tips, rebounds, or him jamming, just jamming it in on a on a wraparound like we saw against the Leafs. Um, he's got great hand eye. I just feel like he's the type of player that would be so easy to play with in terms mm-hmm. of his, you know his sticks always there. It's always available. Um, he creates a ton off the cycle. I just I, I've just become such a big fan of Reinhardt over this this postseason because it's just so easy in a team in a league of whatever seven hundred and fifty players to forget about a few guys or, or, you know, go, Hey, yeah, Reinhardt's a good player, but you don't really like deep dive the guy. And then the playoffs roll around and you really zero in on certain teams. And he's just jumped off the page. And one last thing is, you know, in that, those final three minutes were of game three, where Carolina had the net empty and they're trying to get into Florida zone. Reinhardt had a fantastic back check on Ajo. They were trying the the hurricanes were trying to get out of their own zone and they're kind of fumbling around. And finally, Ajo gets it, the guy who can make that exit, you know, nine times out of ten. But Reinhardt's just all over him. And it it just really stalled anything that Carolina was trying to do in that, that final minute there. So props to him. He's got seven goals, which is tied for the team lead with Kachuk. But I feel like we're just hearing about Kachuk and um, yeah, just want to give a no, shout out to I mean, Mr. Mr. Reinhardt here. He deserves that love. You, you talk about the journey kind of to get to this point. I mean, what a what a fascinating trade that got him to Florida, right? I think Sabres fans should be very happy with the return they got in Devin Levi and, and Yuri Kulich, who's having one of the most productive AHL seasons for his for his you know peer group in terms of age ever. Um, so one heck of a haul. But I think sm- smart Sabres fans during that entire era viewed Reinhardt as like a, a a shining light in an otherwise very, very dark environment. And and it was because of a lot of these plays where it doesn't necessarily pop up in highlight reels, but he just consistently strings together very, very smart plays. And you you you, you highlight that one in game three. I'll give you another one. Um, you know, the goal, obviously, his his work in the bumper on the power play has been fantastic. He's got the seven goals there. He's just so good at finding open pockets and waiting for a Kachuk to get him the puck there and then ripping it on net. But earlier in the game, I believe they were shorthanded at the time. It was kind of towards the end of a penalty kill in the first period. He's kind of in alone, deep in the zone, and he buys enough time to get fresh skaters out for the Panthers. And then he winds up working it around around the, the boards and hits Gus Forsling for like a wide open point blank grade eight opportunity and it was one of those plays where in the wrong hands nothing would have come of it in fact either he would have just you know panicked and threw away the puck or um you know turned it over and then it would have went back the other way and looked very poor on him but instead he wins a battle extends the play buys time and it turns into a great opportunity and i thought that was just like such a perfect summary of what sam reinhardt does so brilliantly so um yeah kudos to him he's been fantastic and uh and well deserving of the praise we just uh heaped upon him Brandon Montour as well, I think, deserves a lot of credit, right? 108 minutes so far in these three games, obviously the whatever, 56 <laughs> or, or something in, in game one. But, you know, we were messaging about this as well. In game one, it was that third overtime. He's like, he looks like he is just coming back from a two-month injury and is like very excited to be back on the ice and playing. Everyone else is just like miserably 
doing these like 30 second shifts and then trying to get off the ice because they're so tired. And then you have Brandon Montour. There was like a three minute shift he had, which culminated in him having a, a one-on-one scoring chance in front of the net against Freddie Anderson that he didn't wind up scoring on. But it was like, man, this guy's ability to get involved, extend plays, kind of sniff an opportunity to attack and then opportunistically get in there has really shined. And his fitness is obviously through the roof. He's an absolute lunatic in my opinion out there in the best way possible. He ripped like a hundred mile an hour clapper at the buzzer in game two. Uh, (laughs) Just every superlative uh, from like a physical perspective is deserving for what Montour is doing in the series so far. Yeah. The the key with modern defenseman, right. Is that, or at least modern defenseman of his ilk where there's more offensive ability than, than perhaps defensive ability though. He's pretty good defensively, but Maurice is, is going to trust him to join the rush, lead the rush because in a couple of strides, he can come back. He can be the first guy back, even though he's the the guy leading the rush. And it's so effortless. It's Miro Heishkinen-esque in terms of the conditioning, the, I guess it just seems like even when he's on two or three minutes for a single shift, I feel like the last 10 seconds are just as, valuable as the first 10 seconds whereas you see some players and they're just completely yeah they fade right yeah they just completely fade and you're like get this guy off the ice or he's going to cost your team a goal i find that montour doesn't really have that in him i mean obviously if you you know took a real microscope to it i'm sure you'd find some some weak moments but this this series he seems to as you mentioned be having a ton of fun and you know we've been talking about journeys and stories and whatnot a lot with Bobrovsky and reinhardt i mean what what Montour has done in terms of going from the Ducks to the Sabres and now to the Panthers and just exploding this year is, is quite something in and of itself. And I, as someone that was from afar and, and, and not really digging into the the video or anything uh, at one point this year, when Ekblad was out, Montour was getting a ton of ice time and I'm going like, this can't, this can't continue. Like I just didn't, I thought that he was more of a, you know, number two guy, three guy, whatever. And it just seemed like they're running this guy in the ground and it really shows the lack of depth on that blue line. But then uh, in the playoffs, it's been almost the opposite. It's like, give this guy as many minutes as possible. And it's been well-deserved. So another example of a guy who, because he's in Florida, gets overlooked a lot. And I I considered him for my Norris ballot. He didn't ultimately make it, but um, he certainly kept the, the 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 train rolling here in the offs in the postseason and arguably looked better than he did in the regular season. Yeah, his uh yeah, his ener- energy reserves in some of these shifts are are quite remarkable. He needs to uh I want to know his workout routine. I gotta gotta get on doing some of these exercises because he's uh he's clearly doing something right. Um okay one final note on this I guess we should mention sir um Sasha Barkov's injury as well, right? Uh left game three early didn't wind up coming back. Uh, curious to see how this plays out. You know, they are up three nothing, so I assume they wouldn't be rushing him if he wasn't ready to come back. We'll see if he does play in game four. I thought that in the first two games, he had a very strong case for being the best skater cumulatively in those two games. Um, you know, in game one, him, Verhage, and Duclair do so much of the heavy lifting offensively for Florida in terms of creating the goals early and then just you know, getting a lot of scoring chances until Kachuk finally breaks through at the end of that fourth overtime. And he's also, you know, that he has the unbelievable display of skill in game two on that goal he scores. He's basically serving as I, I mentioned Montour is kind of like a fourth forward for Florida. That's help that that's possible because Barkov is almost like a third defenseman out there. Like he's done yep. such a Corey Schneider did a really good job of highlighting how much of the heavy lifting he's done uh, deep in his zone, breaking the puck out, carrying it out, uh, you know, efficiently without turning it over in those first two games and how valuable that is for this team. And he's also eating up that Jordan stall matchup, right? We've spent so much time this postseason talking about how that was a huge difference maker because other team, because the hurricanes are just putting him on, Barzal and Horvat, they were putting him on Jack Hughes and winning those minutes and neutralizing the other team's top offensive threats. Well, in this case, Barkov was winning those minutes against that matchup, and that was also allowing a trickle-down effect of everyone else to have an easier go of it, right? And so if he's going to be out, that's obviously going to 
be a huge game changer here. Hopefully it sounds like it's not going to be a serious injury, but he does have a pretty extensive uh, injury history, especially with like kind of like little minor ailments that keep him out longer than, than you'd probably think they would. And so certainly something to monitor as we, uh, as we move forward to game four. Yeah. One of those things where if Florida sweeps, um, sweeps in this round, then they hope to God that the, the West series. Yeah. They're training for a seven game or whatever, yeah. seven games or whatever, because I mean, going into the cup final and we're thinking ahead a little bit here, cause I guess it's possible that Carolina comes back, but Going to the cup final without Barkov, that's that's deadly. Um, and to you know, with with the whole Stall versus Barkov matchup, I I was looking into that uh, after two games and thinking if I'm Paul Maurice, I'm gonna like I'm gonna keep that that going. Uh, I'm gonna not take Barkov away from Stall and just just get that sort of blanketed that that Stall line just taken care of and let the Kachuk line cook in in, in some other way. And obviously, there's a the Reinhardt line too. So. It's just such a benefit to have Barkov um, down the middle there and be, I don't know, uh, top five as far as a three zone player in in the in the NHL, and um, he's certainly far past the uh, the most underrated in the league <laughs> since he was for what five six mm-hmm. years. Like we got to we got to drop that tag, but he's still really fun to watch and just a, a master of subtleties and little details. Kind of curious for your take on this. How do we, how do we reconcile like how enjoying sort of this magical playoff run as it's happening versus, um, you know, kind of balancing your head versus your heart, I guess, where it's like this is this is sort of the beauty of the NHL postseason, right? This kind of this run by a team that you wouldn't have picked to do so at the start of it versus this idea that we seem to want to like because we talk about how the league, it's a copycat league. And so when a team does have success, the way the, the Panthers are one game away from, from representing the East in the cup final, there's a, there's a rush or an urge for everyone to be like, well, what kind of lessons can we draw from this? What takeaways can we make? What have they done that we can incorporate to, to hopefully have this type of run in our future as well. And inst- it almost takes away, I guess, part of like that charm of, enjoying it in the present because it feels like everything needs to be spun forward into a a, con- a bigger picture conversation where I don't necessarily think it needs to be, but I do get it, especially if you're a fan of a team that isn't playing right now, obviously a lot of what's happening is you're, you're using that to kind of frame it through your experience as, as what you want from, from your own team moving forward. Yeah. The thing with the Panthers is that not only were they the eighth seed in the East who barely made it in, but they made this blockbuster trade last offseason that could have went many different ways, and it turned out wonderfully for them. And if you're in another market, you're saying, dear GM, let's do that. Let's be bold. Let's go crazy. But the chances of those hitting uh, are, are, I don't know, not not super high. And the, the circumstances around that trade were just so unique that yeah. I don't know if we would ever really see it again in terms of Calgary really having – little leverage and Kachuk wanting to sign with Florida. It all really lined up quite well for Florida, but they also gave up a lot. Like people are forgetting at the time of the trade, it was like Bill Zito is really hitching his wagon to to Matthew Kachuk here and phenomenal player. You know, if you're going to bet on someone, that's the guy, but still it could have blown up in his face. So it's one of those small sample size things, right? Where it's like, this is maybe more of an anomaly than a trend. Um, and they're certainly not a perfect team. You're, you're not looking at them like, like Colorado, you could look at last year and go like up and down that lineup, quality players. They play with a certain pace. They play with this connectivity, obviously Florida and their forechecking, that's sort of their trademark. And maybe there's something to be pulled out of there in terms of how methodical they are with it and the X's and O's of that. Um, but it's not like forechecking is something new, right? <laughs> it's been part of the game for for decades. So it's 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 a tough one to wrap your head around in terms of lessons. Yeah, I, I know there's people in the, around the league that are that are worried. It's like, what what lessons will people take from this? And in, in terms of, you know, just talking yourselves into, oh well, my team can be very mediocre in the regular season and sneak in as the eighth seed and go on this magical run and. and you mentioned the unique circumstances of this. This is a team that won the president's trophy last year and then acquired a player that's going to finish top three in hard voting this season in his prime. It's, I don't think your 
16th best team in the league, whoever it is, is is applicable to this situation that the Panthers found themselves in. I will also say that, you know, if you're if you're trying to take lessons from how they play, I do th- I'm I'm I'd be happy with that because I think they play a very modern game offensively. They attack a ton off the rush. Then if they don't, they try to, you know, they they specifically try to funnel the puck into certain areas of the ice. They play very aggressively off that forecheck. And and I just think there's there's a lot to nitpick with the way they build their team, especially the blue line and some of the players they give minutes to, but there's also a lot to like as well. And and ultimately the can by man is people are going to see what they want to see regardless. Right. Like, I don't, I don't think the hurricanes winning the cup this year would all of a sudden change someone's opinion who otherwise believed that analytics was complete rubbish into being like, all right, well the hurricanes won. So you know what? I'm a believer and I need to change the way I think about hockey because People just see what they want to see. The 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 abs won last year. They use analytics in their front office as much, if not more, than anyone in the league. And I did not see very many think pieces about how they changed the game of the way in that regard. It was a lot focused around the, you know, the usual suspects of their top players. And then that's totally fine. Those are the guys that won the cup for them. But I just I I think it's kind of a bit naive, I guess, to think that anyone's opinion is going to drastically change based off of the perception of how a team was built or the way they operate. And so um, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've been enjoying this Panthers run. Like it, it's, it's been chaotic. It's been fun. A lot of close games, a lot of coin flips. It's nothing wrong with that. I wouldn't necessarily be like, all right, well, even if they win the cup this year, they should be the favorite heading into next year. I think it is a bit of an isolated magical run in that regard, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it should take away from like the enjoyment in the present. Well, I remember having a conversation with you, Dimitri, I don't know mid-season roughly where we were talking about the Panthers and how their their real window since they have Kachuk under contract for so long and he's so young would kind of start next year and yes. obviously that I thought it was a, a, a bridge year yeah yeah where where you got Hornquist you know money on your cap you've just got like a little bit of dead weight you're transitioning from a certain playing style to another or at least incorporating new nuances into it you've got a new coach there's just a lot going on, a lot unsettled. So we were like, we kind of came to the conclusion, okay, you know, if they make the playoffs this year, that's great. That's gravy. But like, this is about the future and there's some really good foundational pieces here, but Hey, they turned it into something far greater than that. Yes. All right. Um, any, any parting thoughts here, John? I like, I, I wanted to talk a bit about stars, golden Knights with you. I know you, you told me you're working on a, uh, Wyatt Johnston piece potentially, um, it's just the game three is happening tonight. By the time people listen, it the window is very short in terms of like the, the expiration date for a lot of the takes here. Um, but obviously that's another series, two overtime games. Dallas probably needs, should be kicking themselves about not taking game two, but they're right there in it. And I'm very curious to see how this series plays out as we transition to uh, to Dallas. Yeah, obviously this is easy to say now that Carolina is down 3 nothing, not 2 nothing. but I thought after both game twos if you looked back on what had happened I thought that Dallas was in a better position to turn their series around and they still are obviously because we're talking pre-game three I feel like Ottinger hasn't played to his lofty standards he's looked a little human I've noticed that and this could just totally be anecdotal but it seems like Vegas is targeting action from the goal line whether it's passes uh, you know behind the goal line or just you know, that Howden goal was literally off his back or mm-hmm. whatever it was. I don't know if that's something that they've identified as a weakness because Ottinger, as, as you know, you know, we both love this player. Um, not much there in terms of, you know, major weaknesses. And I think what's been exposed a little bit by uh, on Dallas's side is Ryan Suter. I mean, whether it's the loyalty to Suter by DeBoer or, you know, Jim Nill's lack of, talent on the blue line in general in terms of what he's given the board to work with um it's been exposed in this this series it's not exactly breaking news it's been an issue all season yep but uh you especially saw it in the game two tying goal where not only does Suter give the puck away but then he fails to do anything in front of the net uh as far as tying up his his opponent and it just it wasn't a great look and uh it just makes you think is is the defense core they are just not up to not up to uh, i guess stanley cup final quality 
Yeah, uh, the the double standard of how veteran players are treated in this league compared to young players, especially in these moments where they make those types of mistakes, is very irritating to me, right? Where Suter makes it, well, he's right back over the boards on the next shift. And after the game, he's, you know, not taking any responsibility. Instead, not that I'm expecting to be like, listen, I'm sorry for messing up, but it's like a, a very arrogant response, in my opinion, to, to he was just like instantly deflecting and just being like, like very short with the media as opposed to, if a young player did that, put yourself in those shoes, all of a sudden it would be such a big story and people would just be absolutely roasting them the entire time. And so it's a bit frustrating for me, but I will say, you know, on the note of the blue line and kind of the personnel they have there, a key for me to watch here as the series transitions to Dallas, you mentioned how, you know, they're in a bit of a better position to turn this around. Part of it is that, you know, they play the first two games on the road. And now they're going home with last change and Jack Eichel, who's been the best player in this series so far, Bruce Cassidy once again did a wonderful job of getting him out against that SLNDL Colin Miller pairing a bunch in the first two games with the benefit of last change. And so I'm very curious to see how that changes here in games three and four and whether Pete DeBoer can kind of take control of that matchup and get Miro Haskin in out against him much more often and whether that does anything to to slow him down because that Eichel, Barbashev, Marcheseau combination has been just wonderful all postseason so far. So something to watch there. Um, John, we got to get out of here. I will let you um, tell the listeners what uh, what you're working on and uh, where they can check you out. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, Mattis John, uh, M-A-T-I-S-Z-J-O-H-N. I tweet out all my stories. Uh, nothing, you know, coming out imminently on on Y Johnson, um, but uh, we're going to put that on the back him. burner for now. Yeah, yeah, on the back burner a little bit. I mean, it doesn't help that they're down to nothing, right? right. Like it's... Uh, it's just the way she goes. Um, but other than that, pleasure to be on the show again. And uh, yeah, looking forward to coming back uh, sometime soon. All right, John. Well, this is a blast. We will certainly have you back on. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of the PDO cast. So looking forward to that. As always, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.